correspondent Deborah Patters, South Africa's uh, in South Africa in Johannesburg. I spoke to her about South Africa going to the International Court of Justice asking for an urgent intervention uh, over the risk of genocide in Gaza. As you probably recall, in January, South Africa took a case to the um, International Court of Justice in The Hague, asking for urgent measures to protect civilians and ensure humanitarian aid reaches Gaza. These essentially, if you like, are interim measures, almost like a restraining order, while the full case, South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza, will still be heard, and that could take many, many years. But they said the situation was urgent It demanded that kind of intervention. The court essentially um, said that Israel had to do all it must to prevent death, destruction, and any acts of genocide in Gaza, but they stopped short of ordering an end to the military offensive. They did not call for a ceasefire, but said that Israel must ensure death does not continue and that aid gets into Gaza. Now we have a situation where Israel is planning and keeps stating that it's going to launch a ground offensive in Rafah. Now, Rafah is a small little part of the Gaza Strip, pressed right against the border with Egypt, and about 1.4 million Palestinians, there's 2.2, 2.3 in total, in the Gaza Strip, have gone there, have fled the violence elsewhere in Gaza, and most of them are in tents, in camps in that little area. So any invasion there um, is going to be um, could cause a lot of fatalities. Now, Israel has said people must now leave Rafa, but they have nowhere to go. So South Africa has argued that there needs to be further interim measures to safeguard the lives of Palestinians living there. Now, the court has decided not to grant that. They've turned that down. They have noted those developments in Rafa, and they said that this would exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences. But they said that there is no need for further um, rulings from the ICJ, that, that what they have done so far, ordering these acts of destruction and death to stop, is enough for now, and that Israel remains bound to fully comply with these. Whether that happens, of course, remains to be seen. We already heard today Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying they're pressing ahead, and also his ministers repeating that saying that they will continue right through Ramadan, which begins um, around about the 8th or 10th of March. Um, they will continue with the ground offensive then. Does the court have any powers other than the powers of its statements? No, it has the power of moral persuasion. That is all it really does in a sense. It, it does carry authority. It's a shaming thing. It's an embarrassment. It's a terrible thing to be accused of. You know, there you had on the one side, South Africa, the victims of apartheid, accusing Israel, the victims of the Holocaust, these two people who, in a sense, signify some of the worst atrocities that have been committed in the history of humankind, um, facing up against each other. Um, And so that's really what the court carries, is that moral weight. But it has no means to physically or in any way stop Israel from going ahead and doing that. The prospect of um, what would be a landmark genocide case, allegation of of genocide. I think you alluded to it earlier, that were this to to proceed, uh, it's a years-long process, retrospective process, Deb. Absolutely. It's a long, long period. I mean, they're still hearing other cases. They did a similar thing. If you think about Russia's invasion into Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the ICJ 
also ordered Russia to stop acts of genocide there. You had children who were being taken to Russia forcefully, um, Ukrainian children and other horrific acts which are still going on um, in that conflict. Um, of course, R Russia is not a signatory and is, is not party to the ICJ, so they just simply ignored it. Israel is. It is part of that. It has signed um, those documents. Um, but other than holding it accountable, they cannot do anything further. But the retrospective cases um, still go ahead and will still be heard. And any actions that happen now have to be recorded and will be recorded. This is a war that is taking place in full view of the world, although I should point out that Western journalists so far international media has not been allowed into Gaza. It is Palestinian journalists who are carrying the brunt and the burden of coverage there. And many of them, I think it's over 85 now, have died in that conflict. There has been a, a renewal and a long, decades-long conflict in parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. Could you explain what's happening at the moment, please? And a very worrying trend there indeed. I mean, we're talking about genocide. This, you know, Rwanda is a country that had its own horrific history um, in the 90s um, and has sort of come through and is, is, a, is a, a thriving economic um, nation in Africa. But essentially there is growing violence in the DRC, which is neighbors Rwanda, and they blame an armed group which they say is backed by Rwanda. That fighting has flared up in recent days in the eastern part of the DRC. It's near Goma, near the lake there, between what are known as the M23 rebel group and the government forces, the government forces being the DRC government and the M23 rebels supposedly accused of being backed by Rwanda. Dozens of soldiers and civilians have been killed, and the fighting is also also pushed a lot of um, civilians, tens of thousands have fled towards Goma um, on that Lake Kivu and the border with Rwanda. And it's increasing the risk of, of millions of people who are already exposed to many human rights abuses. So it's a very worrying situation indeed. And um, the DRC has accused Rwanda of carrying out now a drone attack, which damaged civilian aircraft at the airport in Goma. They say that it came from the Rwandan territory. The DRC, the United Nations and other Western countries have also accused Rwanda of backing these rebels, essentially in a bid to control very vast mineral source resources which are situated in the Democratic Republic of Congo. South Africa has said it's going to send nearly 3,000 troops to support um, um, the DRC's forces. And you must remember that the Democratic Republic of Congo for decades has been at war with many rebel groups that emerged in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. So many what they call genocidaires who really have known nothing but violence and mayhem and have no jobs, have no employment, um, and are these little disparate groups wandering around the, the, the region. Um, they've already been at war there. So something like this um, could be a very, very dangerous situation. The M23 essentially broke away from the legal DRC army, and it's been fighting for ever since in what is says defense of ethnic Congolese Tutsis. So is there a sense of uh, foreboding and, and just that this could further grow, Deb? There is. There is indeed. There is a deep sense of foreboding. This is a region that has a history of genocide. 
where overnight friends and neighbors were turned against each other. And there is a very, very big fear that that violence could flare into something more dangerous and more horrific. And um, this time it's focused in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and it's been simmering now for a year. This is not the first time that we've seen fighting between the government forces and M23. So it's a very, very worrying situation and one that needs to be monitored very, very carefully. What are the vigils dubbed Dark Valentine that have been happening, uh, led, I think, by a Kenyan woman, Deb? I'm glad you asked me about that. You know, as people around the world mark Valentine's Day with flowers and chocolates, and um, I actually forgot it was Valentine's Day this year. Um, so, bad one for me. But in Kenya, um, it's taken on a very different nature altogether with women mourning what they call dark Valentine. Hundreds of them, they donned these black outfits, they held candles and held red roses at a vigil in honor of more um, than 30 women who have been murdered in that country in 2024 alone. I mean, we're only just into February, and they're saying that already 30 women have been um, killed there. Incidences of femicide, women who are killed deliberately with the intention of killing women, have risen exponentially exponentially in that country. And that vigil in Nairobi, in the capital, um, featured very impassioned calls, in a sense, to action, um, and was organized by what's called the End Femicide Kenya Movement. Um, and they had these um, messages like, flowers are not beautiful on a casket, referencing the number of women who have been killed. The most worrying trend about female violence, violence against women um, in Kenya, is that Two-thirds of it are committed by husbands and boyfriends, people who are known to these women who turn on them. And it does have a terrible history of domestic violence in, in Kenya. So um, this particular movement certainly is rooted in that kind of background and follows just, I think, about two weeks ago, a particularly brutal killing of two women who were dismembered and put into trash bags. The government doesn't specifically collect figures on women who've been killed, but I think the, re the figure for 2023 was over 150 that were killed, just women specifically killed because they were women, and two-thirds of those by boyfriends and husbands. Deborah Petter, CBS News foreign correspondent based in South Africa.